Well, amen. Well, let me ask if you would, if you're inclined to turn, turn in God's Word to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to start near the very end of Genesis chapter 49 and then be moving into chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible and are using one in the seats in front of you there, it's going to be either page 41 or page 43, near the end of Genesis chapter 49. And before we get into things this morning, I just want to uh, say a word of praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving uh, along with the Ingram family. Many of you know Tim and Willie and their two sons, Everett and Solomon, welcomed a new member of the family this week, Tovia Bikgayun. I think I said that correct. Uh, Tovia is a Hebrew word for Yahweh is good. Bik Gayun is a composite, I believe, of uh, Willie's mother and grandmother's name. And uh, so she was born on Wednesday morning and is uh, doing well, and Willie's doing well, and uh, continue to be praying for them. I know a number of you have reached out to them and, and seen pictures and other things, and uh, we're just rejoicing with them in the addition of this precious new blessing. So praise the Lord for his kindness uh, for them all. Well, as you see the title of the sermon this morning, A Burial of Hope-Filled Promise. And we are going to enter into the final chapter of Genesis where we learn of both the death and the burial uh, of Jacob, also known as Israel. And the story of Jacob and his sons has consumed the entire last half of Genesis. It goes all the way back in its beginning of that story with Jacob and his sons to chapter 25 where we learn about Jacob's birth. But I want to read our text this morning. I'm actually going to start in verse 29 of chapter 49 and then read through verse 14 of chapter 50. So I'll read the text and then lead us in prayer and we'll move into things. But let's hear the word of our living God. So verse 29 of chapter 49. Then he, Jacob, commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In verse 50, or chapter 50, verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Verse 7. 
So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company." And when they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great and holy Father in heaven, nothing in life hits us as hard as the sting of death, both the death of our loved ones and our own inevitable death. But you are the living and the undying God who promises the hope of your eternal life to all who receive Jesus Christ through faith. And so, Father, please help us now to hear and to taste and to see of your life-giving goodness revealed in the text you have set before us. Grant us to understand, to believe, and to live in light of the hope-filled promises that you have given in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, the year was 1791, 1791. The French Revolution, which would greatly impact a young America, was two years old and was going to rage on for another eight years. And in America, President George Washington was also two years into his tenure and he would continue for another six years. And 1791 is also the year that Washington, D.C. was officially named after our first president. And likewise in that year, as I'm sure you know, uh, Vermont was admitted as the 14th U.S. state. And in the world of sports, the first known reference, reference to the game of baseball was made in North America in, you guessed it, 1791. 1791 was 232 years ago. That's a long time. It's long before any of us were born, of course. It's long before the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Gulf War, and countless other wars. It was long before the invention of light bulbs and automobiles and airplanes and television and radio and smartphones and Apple watches and in and out burgers. 
It was long before the discovery of gold in California, long before the discovery of penicillin in medicine. It was long before anyone had ever heard of Abraham Lincoln or the Beatles or the Super Bowl. It was a long, long time ago. And the reason I share all of that is because 232 years is the length of time between when God first made promises to a man named Abraham, as we learn in Genesis chapter 12, and then the death of his grandson Jacob here at the end of Genesis 49. And God had promised Abraham that he would bless him and make him a great nation with a great name and innumerable offspring. And God also promised to give him a great, vast land to dwell in and to bless him so greatly that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then following Genesis chapter 12, as the narrative unfolds, we learn of God's covenant promises continued on through Abraham's son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob. But as we come to Jacob's death and his burial here at the end of Genesis, 232 years after God had originally made these promises to Abraham, very few of these promises have actually been fulfilled. God's chosen people at the time of Jacob's death, they are not a great geopolitical nation, but rather a fledgling tribe of nomadic shepherds numbering probably around a hundred people at this time. And they're living far from the promised land of Canaan. Because 17 years prior to Jacob's death, they had relocated a couple of hundred miles to the southwest in the prosperous country of Egypt. And though dwelling amid the resources of this rich and global superpower, they were yet sojourners in a foreign land, very dependent on the favor and the provision of Pharaoh. So there's very few promises that have seen much fulfillment in Jacob's life. Well, now here's Jacob at 147 years old, we're we're told earlier. He breathes his last and he's gathered to his people. But as he had progressively learned through his life to live by faith in God's promises, so he dies in that faith in God's promises, even though he has seen very little of their fulfillment. And because of his faith in God and God's promises, Jacob made his sons, as we read, to carry his body from Egypt and bury him in a cave in the promised land of Canaan. And as we read of that at the end of chapter 49, earlier before he had pronounced blessings on his grandsons and his sons, he had also made Joseph swear that he would do the same in taking his body to the land of Canaan. And so as we move into chapter 50 verses 1 to 14, this portion of course tells the story of how this all then came to be. And so in verse 1, we first hear of how Joseph, Jacob's beloved son and now exalted viceroy of Egypt, grieves uncontrollably when his father dies. 
he falls on Jacob's face and he weeps over him and he kisses him. And all of this is displaying, of course, uninhibited affection and sorrow for his father. And such is consistent with what we've seen of Joseph's character on previous occasions. We're earlier told that when he revealed himself to and when he was united with, reunited with Jacob and his brothers, that he also wept and cried upon them. And we learn that Joseph was a man of great humility, great godliness, great courage and wisdom, and also of great emotion. He cried. Well, then verses 2 and 3 tell how Joseph leverages his high position to secure the embalming, uh, really the mummification of Jacob's body. And in that country and in that culture, such procedures were only done for the influential and the wealthy, of which Joseph, of course, was both of those in Egypt. And so Joseph has his personal physicians perform the mummification process, which we're told took 40 days to complete. And the Egyptians wept for Jacob during that time, and then an additional 30 days for a total of 70 days of weeping and mourning. And this was an expression of their love and their affection and appreciation for Joseph and thus for his father Jacob. It's interesting that the customary time for weeping for a pharaoh that died in Egypt was 72 days. And so this expression that they wept and mourned for 70 days expresses the high esteem and the high honor that they gave to Joseph and to his father Jacob. Well, then at the end of these days of weeping, we're told in verses 4 to 6 that Joseph respectfully and diplomatically seeks Pharaoh's permission to leave and bury Jacob in the land of Canaan. And even though Joseph, as viceroy, was in a position of power, second only to Pharaoh, yet he fully honored and respected Pharaoh's superiority. And it's interesting, this dynamic of the relationship of a pharaoh with God's people here through Joseph is actually anticipating harsher times that will come following Joseph and his death, as we will begin to read about if you were to read on into Exodus 1 and following. But presently, Joseph is uh, citing the oath that he made to Jacob before he died. And again, that's earlier near the end of chapter 47. And then at the end of verse 5 here in chapter 50, he explicitly promises that he'll return to Egypt. Now, even though Pharaoh fully trusted Joseph, who had at this time served him over 25 years, he knew that Joseph and his family were originally from Canaan, and that they could perhaps seize this opportunity to to return permanently to their homeland. And so Joseph's promise in his request of Pharaoh was winsome, it was wise, and it was also honest. And so Pharaoh grants Joseph's request. Well then, in verses 7 to 9, we learn of this great entourage of Jacob's sons, households, of Egyptian dignitaries and elders, and of military force that make this long journey to Canaan. The trip was uh, probably in excess of 200 miles. It probably took at least three weeks or so. 
And so we read in verse 7, and just listen to the picture that is displayed here. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, which was the area in Egypt where they had settled. And then verse 9, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Indeed, it was. And this funeral procession is a show of state of the highest degree, fully displaying the wealth and the color and the power and the superiority of Egypt. And only the children and livestock, we're told, of Joseph and his brothers are left behind perhaps obligating the family's return to Egypt. And then also the military presence of chariots and of horsemen no doubt provided protection for the entire retinue, but it also no doubt subtly reminded Joseph that he was bound to return. And so this procession, if you think about it, really was a mini exodus, if you will, of God's people going out of Egypt to the land of God's promise. And as such, it thus foreshadowed what we could call the mega exodus, the full exodus that would happen in more than 400 years as God promised when the Israelites at that point in excess of 2 million people would leave Egypt for good under God's mighty hand. And so in many ways, this is a mini anticipation of that future exodus yet to come. And it's in the book of Exodus, specifically chapter 12, that that exodus takes place. Well, back in Genesis 50, upon the arrival in Canaan beyond the Jordan River, uh, verses 10 and 11 reveal that more intense grieving and lamentation takes place of such a nature that the Canaanites take notice. And then in verses 12 and 13, we're told that Joseph and his brothers, they make good on their promise. And so we read in verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Now, we won't take time to go there, but it's back in Genesis chapter 23, at the time of the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, that the details of how Abraham legally bought this land are revealed to us. And the significance of this is this is the only property in the promised land that God's people possess, legally possess. Now, Jacob had told his sons at the end of chapter 49 that um, both Abraham and Sarah were buried there and also Isaac and his wife Rebekah and also Jacob apparently had buried his wife Leah there as well. And so that's where he uh, designs and is committed and is commanding his sons to bury them. And they do exactly what he commands them to do. They bury him in the very same place. And it's important to know that this small field and, and this cave grave, we could call it, was the only land that Abraham and his offspring, as I mentioned, legally possessed in all of Canaan. 
And that's why there's all this legal language regarding the ownership of the land and the fact that it is in the possession of Abraham and his offspring. It's emphasizing the legal possession they have of this small, small portion of land. So it was small, but it was a foretaste. It was a deposit. It was a seed, if you will, of greater fulfillment of God's promises yet to come. Well then, this part of the story ends in verse 14, which is where we're ending with the narrative this morning, with Joseph fulfilling his promise to return to Egypt. And so we read there, verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And we can only imagine what a somber journey back that must have been. We've been told much in the story about the lamenting, about the mourning, about the grieving that is going on. And so no doubt there is that that cloud that is over them all as they head back to Egypt. But most likely there's also a sobriety and a somberness in view of what these men must have known about God's promises. Because they had learned them from their father Jacob, who had learned them from his father Isaac, who had learned them from his father Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And these promises that God progressively expanded upon and reinforced and strengthened and unfolded to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, they included what God had told Abraham at one point in Genesis chapter 15. And listen to what God says to Abraham and how this relates to this whole situation now with God's people going back to Egypt. In Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years." He says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then in verse 16, God says, and they shall come back here, meaning to the promised land, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so it's likely that Joseph and his brothers knew and pondered these words even as they return back to Egypt. And we know, because we have the book of Exodus and all that follows, that they would indeed be there in excess of 400 years. And they would grow and they would multiply into a great nation before God in his providence and in his power would bring them back through Moses uh, and then ultimately through Joshua into the promised land. And so these are significant events that are taking place for Jacob and his offspring as the book of Genesis nears its end. And so within all of this that we see, we ask the question, well, what's the point? What's the point of this entire narrative? Why is it here? These just interesting historical facts. And the answer, as we've seen again and again and again, is no, there's a lot more to it than just the history. The history is important, but it's what God is doing in the midst of the history. And the point of it all is to show us this, I believe, that God's people are to live and die with faith in God's promises. God's people 
are to live and die with faith in God's promises. And this is exactly what Jacob did. He lived and he died with faith in God's promises, even though he saw such little fulfillment of those promises in his lifetime. And yet by the end of his life, now at 147 years old, he's emphatically making provisions and and causing Joseph to swear and promise and his sons, he's commanding them to take his body back into Canaan. Why? Because he's learned to live and to die in view of God's promises. In faith, convinced that God would indeed keep his promises, Joseph made certain that his burial would take place in God's promised land in Canaan. That's why this was a burial of hope-filled promise, of hope-filled promise. Now, we know at this time that God's promises were uppermost in Jacob's heart and mind as he was dying because we're told so in a few places. Back at the beginning of chapter 48, if you want to slip back there, Jacob is on his deathbed and he's about to bless his grandsons, Joseph's two sons, and then following that, he's going to bless the rest of his sons. But listen to what Jacob says to Joseph in verses 3 and 4 and and see how this is just oozing out of Jacob's heart and mind as he's on his deathbed. He says this in verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And you see what Jacob is doing, he's recounting some of the promises that God had spoken to him many years earlier. There's a number of different times in the midst of Jacob's earthly journey that God appears to him and speaks such promises to him, which are extensions and expansions of the promises that God had originally made to Abraham. We read of those and those events and those promises in, in uh, chapter 28, for instance, also in chapter 35, also in chapter 46, at the beginning of the time when Jacob and his sons, 17 years earlier than his death, are now coming into Egypt to dwell there. And so he's recounting these, he's rehearsing these, and you hear the sense of conviction and confidence and certainty in his expression of what he knows God Almighty is going to do, because this is what God Almighty said. This is what God Almighty promised. And so he's recounting these promises, and he had lived by faith in these promises, however sinful and however imperfect he was, and he was sinful, and he was very imperfect. Just again, go back to chapter 25 and begin to read about Jacob and his sons, and you'll see a lot of sin and a lot of imperfection. And yet, God was doing a work of faith in this man. And that faith was growing, it was maturing, it was being purified, it was being sanctified, often through very hard, difficult, painful circumstances, 
But God was strengthening and maturing the faith of his servant. And so now, as he's been learning to live by faith in these promises, now knowing that he's dying, he's dying with faith in these promises. In fact, in chapter 48, a few few verses past uh, the beginning there, down in verses 15 and 16, listen to what Joseph says with words that are indicating his confident assurance in God's love, in God's presence, in God's faithfulness. And he's saying these words as he's just about to bless Joseph's sons. So we read in verse 15, he blessed Joseph and he said, here it is, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Do you see how he is expressing trust and delight and confidence in God? in God's greatness, in God's goodness, in God's faithfulness and power. And it's very interesting, this is the first time in the book of Genesis, and thus in all of Scripture, that God is referred to as a shepherd. But it certainly won't be the last time. And Jacob, of course, at this time, he could not fathom it, but the God who was his shepherd and the angel who redeemed him from all evil would in time fulfill his promises in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one we know is the great and the chief and the good shepherd. The one we know from John 10, who is the good shepherd sent by God because of God's love for the world, who would do what? Who would lay down his life on the cross for his sheep, for sinful Guilty, condemned sinners like Jacob and like all who would repent and who would believe God's promises. So the old patriarch here, Jacob, soon to die, is trusting, rejoicing in, delighting in God his shepherd whom he had seen and learned had been faithful to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac And he had known it now in his own life. And I've wondered, it's just a little bit of of, of imagination perhaps, but we know that at the time he dies, at 147 years old, he and all of his sons and their families have been living in in, uh, Egypt for 17 years. And of course, just immediately prior to them relocating there, there was this massive uh, reunion and reuniting with uh, his father and with all of the brothers. It's a sweet, it's a beautiful, it's an emotional scene. But during that 17 years, no doubt there was opportunity to just reflect and contemplate and think about the faithfulness of God. And I think Jacob had come to understand that God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This is a living illustration of that truth that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He's knowing God, trusting God, rejoicing in God as his faithful shepherd king and the angel who redeemed him from all evil. And beloved, the call of God for us through Jacob's burial of hope-filled promise 
It's the same call for us to live and to die with faith in God's loving promises. That's the message of the text this morning, an encouragement, an exhortation, a a provocation, an enticement for us to be living and dying with faith in God's loving promises. And if you think about it, now thousands of years after the time of Jacob, we have so many more promises of God than he did, right? All revealed in all of God's word and all of them, of course, centered and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. And so the thrust of the call, the thrust of God's message to us through this, through this passage is, beloved, imitate Jacob. Live and die with faith in God's promises. And listen, until Jesus returns, and if he does return in our lifetime, and we pray, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. But unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, all of us are going to die before God's promises in our own experience are fully fulfilled. Because we know there's more to come as the pages of the New Testament and on through the book of Revelation reveal to us. And all of those promises, again, are realized in Jesus Christ, but there is more yet to come. And unless Jesus comes and those final events and the new heaven and the new earth are established with His coming, We're going to die waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. And so imitating the faith of Jacob, and of course all the other Old Testament saints like him, is what we're called to do. And I'm sure many of you know this is the emphatic message of the book of Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews chapter 11. And I'd invite you to turn there for just a few moments, and this is where we're going to kind of wind things down as we move towards sharing together in the Lord's Supper. But to just see this again, against the backdrop of Jacob living and dying with faith in God's promises. This is the message of the whole book of Hebrews, to see and to know and behold the superiority and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of all God's promises, and to trust and to keep trusting Him. So look at the very beginning of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We're we're told something of the nature of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then down in verse 6, we we learn of the absolute necessity of faith. The writer says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so throughout this chapter, as it is appropriately called the Hall of Faith, there's just person after person after person that is mentioned. Jacob is in there, Abraham is in there, Isaac is in there, Joseph is in there, many others are in there, given as illustrations, given as models of faith. Sinful and imperfect, though every single one of them was, yet they trusted in God's promises. And so then look at verse 13. We hear sort of this uh, summary statement regarding the nature and the significance of their faith. Verse 13 and following, These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, they're not just thinking of the promised land in Canaan, we're told. They're thinking of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. We read then at the very end of chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, again, sort of in summarizing it all, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so you see, beloved, within all of this is this call to imitate such faith, to live and die with faith in God's promises, knowing that unless the Lord Jesus returns before you die, you're going to die before you experience and see the full fulfillment of all of his promises. And of course, the implicit question that all of Scripture asks, and it's certainly emphatic in, if, in Hebrews chapter 11, the implicit question is, do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of saving faith that is continuing to trust even when you don't see the fulfillment of what God has promised? Well, if we move from chapter 11 into the beginning of chapter 12, we see the flow of thought where all this is pointing in a very practical, a very urgent, and a very strong exhortation that we find in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Therefore, in light of all that he's just said and this call to imitate such faith as he's just described, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a call to persevere in faith. And that's the context we know from many other things said in the whole letter of Hebrews. That's the context of people to whom this is written are Christians, professing Christians who are, who are wavering and who are shrinking back in unbelief because of trials, because of pressures, because of hardship, because of persecution, because of difficulty. And so whole, the whole letter expresses this exhortation to continue to look to Christ in all of his superiority, all of his sufficiency, all of the wonder and riches of who he is and what he's accomplished, and to continue to press on in faith. But you see, the exhortation then, as it's expressed in verses 1 and 2 here, is an exhortation to get rid of anything, anything in our lives that hinders or undermines our growth in faith. Because again, as we saw in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
So when he says that we're to throw off, uh, lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so, clings, clings so closely, those are realities that undermine faith, that undermine fi- faith. And so we're to lay aside whatever is sinful and also whatever might lead to sin in our lives. And we're also to lay aside every weight. And as this is coupled with that which is sinful, it tells us that there are those things in life that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but they easily become a burden. They become a weight. They become a hindrance, an encumbrance to living and dying with faith in God's promises. And there's so many things that we could identify, aren't there? Are there not? Hobbies, toys, money, career, pleasure, comfort, social media, food, on and on and on it goes. Many things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but if we're not careful, they can so easily become an encumbrance to the kind of faith that God is working to develop in our lives. And the fact that our gracious, loving, powerful, sovereign, wise God is working to develop such faith in our lives is why the writer of Hebrews then in verses 3 and following in chapter 12 goes on to talk about the loving discipline of God. And because He loves us as His children, if indeed we are His children in trusting Christ, He will discipline us. He will correct us. He will train us. He will do what is necessary to produce what we're told in verse 11 of chapter 12 is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes as the fruit of faith. And so you see, this is the exhortation to live and to die with faith in God's promises and very practically and specifically to consider our own lives What are the sin that we need to lay aside and make no provision for in any way? What are the things that maybe aren't sin in and of themselves, but can nonetheless so easily hinder our cultivation of a life of faith? What are the sins? What are the weights? What are the encumbrances that God wants you to lay aside and wants you to change? I must say as well, just with this strong exhortation in chapter 12, there is Excuse me, there's also a strong word of warning. Look near the end of chapter 12 at verse 25, and here's the warning. And this echoes other warnings that are present in the book of Hebrews. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And then he speaks of the events that transpired at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 when God's people, when God spoke to his people and that's when he gave them the law. He goes on to say some things there regarding that and the the unshakableness of, of God's purposes and that there is going to be realities yet coming. And he calls for acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He says then in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. So there's a warning. Don't refuse God when he's speaking because you're not going to escape. You're not going to conquer God. You're not going to conquer God's judgment. And so he calls us to faith with both an exhortation and a warning.
And so brothers and, Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have trusted Christ, this is a call to believe, to live and to die with faith in God's promises. And as we see that modeled and evidenced in the life of Joseph, to know that that is God's call for us as well, evidenced in the life of Jacob and certainly in Joseph as well, but particularly with regard to Jacob and his burial of hope-filled promise. And even amid things that we battle in our own souls, right? Things from the past that can bring guilt and despair and regret, doubts and fears that we might have about the future, and then, of course, present temptations and weaknesses and needs that we face again and again and again and again. Our gracious, good, faithful, loving, powerful, wise God calls us to keep believing, to keep believing and to keep trusting Him. And see, that's what we see with Jacob at the end of his life. He's still not a perfect man, but he's trusting the perfect God. He has a deep sense of confident assurance in the hope-filled, loving promises of God. The one he knows as his faithful shepherd and his faithful redeemer. And so such is the hope in the life and death of every believer for those who are trusting Christ and the salvation that God has given and secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that's your hope as well. Amen and amen.